Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Managing Editor James Kleiman to talk about the latest twist in the commission lawsuits, which involves the Department of Justice. James, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be back. Thanks for having me. Of course. Okay, so let's get the latest on the commission lawsuits that realtors are facing, that their National Association of Realtors is, is facing. We had some developments last week, late last week, with a, a different case the Department of Justice is involved in. Can you can you give us the latest on that? Yeah. On Friday, there was a, a hearing at an appellate court in Washington, D.C., where a panel of three judges heard oral arguments from the National Association of Realtors and the U.S. Department of Justice. And this is a case that will decide whether or not the DOJ is able to reopen an investigation into the commission rule that, of course, is already uh, you know, spreading like wildfire in the court systems across the U.S. And so on, on December 1st, Friday, a three-judge panel for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit it seemed like they, they were more in favor of the DOJ's argument that the antitrust division can resume its investigation. And just to give people a quick primer, the DOJ back in, gosh, I want to say 2018 or 2019, began an investigation into the NAR's cooperative compensation rule. Some people know it as the participation rule, but this was at the heart of the Sitzer Burnett case in Missouri, and it's also at the heart of the moral case in Illinois and, and basically every copycat case that has been filed since the initial ruling. And the rule basically requires listing brokers to make an offer of compensation to the buyer brokers in order to submit a listing to a realtor-affiliated MLS. And, and this is essentially the way that the vast majority of agents in the U.S., have transacted for the last, you know, 30 years, give or take, almost 30 years. And so there's a similar component, which is the clear cooperation policy, which the NAR adopted in June of 2020. And those who are in the real estate game probably know that this is a rule that was used to curb pocket listings, which the DOJ also began investigating. And, and so the policy requires any agent who begins marketing on a listing, whether that's putting up a, a flyer or, uh, you know, putting a, a yard sign in the front, um, they would need to submit that listing onto the DOJ within one business day of marketing that property. And so in 2020, I want to say it was like October, November, the DOJ and the NAR agreed to a settlement of the investigations and the DOJ sends over these letters to the NAR saying the investigation of these two rules has closed. However, as we know, a couple of days later, the Biden administration um, or Joe Biden rather is victorious over Donald Trump and in January takes office. A couple of months later, the DOJ withdraws from the settlement. Um, that's in July. And then they, begin 
another investigation into both of those rules. And we know that the DOJ has been very interested in antitrust issues and, and not just related to the NAR and, and the real estate industry, but really across the board. And the FTC in particularly has been quite litigious. And, uh, and so the DOJ is asking the courts to allow the participation rule and the clear cooperation rule to be evaluated just on their merits alone and continue this investigation. The NAR, of course, says, look, this is a settled matter and we shouldn't be reopening the scan. The DOJ already said we were good. So, you know, butt out basically. But it sounds like I, I think there's a very, very strong likelihood the DOJ is going to prevail here. And that is very bad news for the NAR. It really is. And it does seem interesting uh, to me. So, you know, part of the technical parts of this case was like, you know, the DOJ said, you know, the matter is closed and NAR is arguing that like, that means you can't reopen it. And, you know, the judge seemed to be skeptical of that uh, on Friday where she's like, it doesn't mean you can't re it just means closed doesn't mean anything about the future. So um, th that that's maybe the thing that people are pointing to to say, eh, it doesn't seem like, you know, they're leaning the NARS way. Yeah. And I think this really does tip the scales in the favor of, I don't know if you could argue the consumer, but, but certainly against the realtors and against the organizations that support them, the NAR, and then potentially downstream with the state associations, the local associations. And then of course we get into the nitty gritty of the MLSs, which to date have not really been targeted by many of the lawsuits. And it's not named for the record in the DOJ settlement or the, you know, potential subsequent investigations, but the MLSs are, are really what underpin the system that we have here. And, and again, I, I think, it's worth repeating every single time we talk about this, Sarah, when you look at who actually has the money, who makes the money on these home sales, it's not the brokerages. It's not the NAR, although it is a very well-funded lobbying organization and, and a policymaking kind of self-regulator of sorts. The people who make all the money are the individual realtors. And it's not even the part-timers. You know, the average I think the average real estate agent in America is a 60-year-old woman who works 20 to 30 hours a week and makes like $50,000, maybe less, something like that. I mean, it's not it's not it's not what people might assume when they think about the term realtor or real estate agent. They probably think about million-dollar listing and those are the people who have all the money, right? It's the professional top of the heap. You know, the top 5% of agents have all the money. Everyone else just gets a little bit of it to date because of the complexity of these cases. No one is really attempting to go after the agents themselves, but they want to go after the systems that have really kind of promoted the way that they do make the money and, and retain it. So, you know, I, I was reading the Politico story on this, and they were talking about how, um, you know, at the heart of this, it's going off after, and I'm doing quotes here, the lucrative 
real estate commissions, which made me laugh because to your point, it's like, oh, it's lucrative for some people. And of course, there are agents that make a a ton of money. We, you know, Real Trending tracks the top agents and brokerages um, in the country we have for like 25 years. And absolutely, there are people, you know, killing it, making money. But to your point, the average person does not. And then the other thing that that story brought up from, from the DOJ trial was like, you know, in the age of Zillow, you know, what is it that that broke uh, agents bring to the table? And of course, that was a huge part of the uh, Missouri lawsuit, the Sitzer Burnett, that was where, you know, the parties were found liable for conspiracy. They brought it up over and over again. It's like, you know, why are we paying them? We've got Zillow. We don't need this. And it's like, you know, I you wouldn't have Zillow if you didn't have the MLSs. You wouldn't have, I mean, and then you, all you do is, you know, there's a house available. That's all, that's all Zillow tells you, really. Yeah. And in some cases, I, the, the reason I don't use Zillow when I get curious and, and look for homes is because I don't think a lot of the in-contractor pending uh, designations are very clear. Whereas I, I think it's a lot more clear on Realtor and some of the other portals. So I don't even use Zillow. I haven't looked on Zillow in probably like five or six years. Maybe they've changed it in the last you know, year or so. But but yeah, I mean, to your point, it's really about the MLSs. It's, it's where all of the data is. It's where all of the rules are ultimately enforced. It's the local associations. It's the state associations. It's where the sausage is made, so to speak. And to the comment about the commissions, it's $100 million a year. It is a lot in commissions in the aggregate. But I'd say only a small minority of agents make the majority of the commissions. But just as important is to note that, let's say you have my hometown of Wyckoff, New Jersey. There's probably about five or six top agents that definitely individually have probably 10% of market share. So we're talking about 50% of the market. The other 50% is just like random agents from elsewhere in New Jersey or a relative or a family friend or someone you know, who might have tangential knowledge of the market, who might um, be able to provide a decent service in some respect. But they do that one-off deal in Wyckoff maybe once a year, maybe once every couple years. In the aggregate, there's a lot of them, right? And they're going to take a sizable amount of commissions, but if the cost of that one agent who does a single deal in Wyckoff per year or every two years or whatever isn't worth all the dues and isn't worth all the association fees and you know maybe they need health insurance or maybe you know maybe the other expenses related to being an agent which as you know Sarah is can be great you know you drive around you spend a lot in gas you might you you they get taxed too. People don't know this, but 1099s um, do get taxed at, at a pretty high clip as well, right? So if it isn't worth it for that agent who transacted once in Wyckoff that year, the one who did 10 deals in Wyckoff isn't going to be going anywhere. So if the commission pool does shrink from $100 billion to, let's say, $65 billion, hypothetically across the country, it's going to be those top agents who are doing 10 deals a year in Wyckoff. We're just going to have a greater share 
of that $66 billion. I mean, I feel like that's already happened, though. I and mean, we've already seen a ton of agents leave. To me, it's it's the next level that I worry about where it's like, you know, I mean, you, you could be doing a good job. You're not doing it part time. You're, you're doing it and, and you're still going to be hit pretty hard by some of these things. And I think the thing that I don't feel like uh, I'm, I'm surprised that people don't see more value in their agents. Maybe I've just worked with some amazing ones, but like on the buy side and on the sell side uh, as a listing agent or the person, you know, helping me find a house, I, I am very, unless I'm going to a builder, Unless I'm just going to a builder and I found it. And, you know, even then I I had an agent when I was building a house and they helped me negotiate a, a, a better deal. So it's interesting to me that there is um, so little thought of the agent and it's like, oh, well, we've got not just Zillow, but any of the portals, right? We've got these portals. Now we don't need them. It's like, gosh, that's that's really crazy. It's difficult because if you're starting out as an agent and you don't have a good referral network to start and you don't have proper mentorship and you don't have enough money in the bank, enough savings to manage to survive the first probably two, three years, right? Like you don't automatically make money as an agent. Almost nobody does unless they're in the luxury space and they're transitioning from a similar field. And again, they have a a well-resourced clientele already waiting to work with them. You know, I I know a, a top producer, in Florida, who says every deal should spin off three others in the next five years. And if I didn't get three deals out of whatever I did with that initial client, I failed them, you know, and I failed myself really, right? I don't know that every agent thinks like that. Maybe more of them should. But the bigger problem here is so many of the structures in real estate are built on this idea that there's a low barrier to entry. You want to try your your hand in it. You can, but we're not going to provide you a lot of support. We're not going to provide you a lot of mentorship unless you have a lot of skin in the game. And a lot of people who are just starting out don't have that luxury. Not everybody cannot make much money at all for two, three years, right? I mean, this isn't this isn't an equitable system. And I think the real estate brokerages should be doing more to provide proper mentorship. I think the managing brokers need to do a better job with training and doing more than just feeding somebody a script and saying, go get him, kid. You know, it's not, it's not fair. Um, the world isn't fair, of course. And if we do lose, let's say we have about 1.5 million realtors, give or take, we'll find out in a couple months how many of them renew. Um, that'll be interesting. We, we know that the numbers are dropping a little bit, but they haven't they haven't sunk like a stone or anything like that. I mean, they've been fairly consistent in the one five area for the last couple of years, right? And they spiked majorly when when the COVID feeding frenzy was was at its peak. But whatever the circumstances, not everybody's going to make it. It's an entrepreneurial career. People fail as entrepreneurs, and it's not a reflection of their character necessarily. But yeah, there are going to be some casualties who are full timers, and in an ideal circumstance, would have made it. So we did a survey um, a couple of weeks ago of our audience, of the Real Trends audience, which is very agent heavy, and you know got a um, couple hundred respondents, and you know a good majority of them said that they would uh, be happy to just you know if they didn't have to have the NAR membership and they could just have access to the MLSs, 
that would be fine with them, right? Many people have said, you know, the whole the whole value that NAR brings, the National Association, is the fact that they can access the MLSs. So you do think that, you know, something could be decoupled there, potentially. I feel like that's the part of this that really hasn't hasn't been talked about. Um, I was on a, a call with hundreds of agents uh, last week. And one of the questions that, you know, they, they talked about was like, you know, what are, what are the chances that the MLS, that there is going to be this decoupling and we can just go straight to the MLSs and, and not have NAR? I would love to ask you what your opinion is of that. I think there is a, a decent chance that the NAR runs out of money at some point if they're facing all these lawsuits, right? I mean, they have about a billion in assets, right? But a lot of that is tied up in real estate. They need to come up with a huge bond to fight this one case in Missouri, Sitzer Burnett. They're going to have to litigate another case, the Gibson case, most likely. They've got all these copycat lawsuits left and right, even if many of them are, in their eyes, frivolous, just copycat. You still have to fight them, right? You still need to hire. And the people they hire are not random lawyers off the street, they're going after top antitrust law firms. And we talked a week or two ago about some of the shortcomings, I think, or, you know, maybe some of the elements of, of how to argue the case that they didn't quite get right, that they have, I imagine, reflected on and, and are considering for the upcoming battles. But one, the NAR is going to have a lot of money that they have to spend are they going to be raising dues to cover? That's very unpopular. Nobody wants to be paying more for this. Then there are other questions about how many MLSs and state associations say we're just not going to take on the liability of tying our wagon to the NAR and they might break away. We've seen a couple brokerages have already said our agents don't need to do this. I think the vast majority are still going to keep an affiliation because right now in most places as an agent, you need to be a member of the local association, which requires membership to the national chapter to gain access to that MLS, right? The MLS is the lifeblood of how agents transact. Um, But I do think we're going to see a decoupling in some manner, if only because the NAR is losing a lot of leverage. They're losing a lot of power. They also have the sexual harassment issues at the top. It is not, I think, by most accounts, been a supremely well-run organization. Forget the, the legal issues with the commission lawsuits. Even separating that, there are other big organizations that would have crumbled given some of the, I think, the very credible allegations made about a toxic work culture, about permissive sexual harassment, a culture of NDAs and silencing people who have, again, I think pretty legitimate claims. It's not a good look post Harvey Weinstein, post Me Too. The optics alone are terrible. And people forget, but the NAR is like 60-something percent women. Really, really bad. So to get back to to your original question, yeah, I I think there's a very good chance we start to see some of the state, national, state or local chapters move a little bit away from the NAR. There's a lot of 
targets on the NAR right now. If you can do what a Redney does or a Northwest MLS, or maybe you start your own association that does provide an MLS and you bring on a vendor to work on the technology and you come up with rules that you feel are less likely to get you under an antitrust lawsuit or a DOJ complaint, that might be the prudent thing to do. So yeah, I, I think a lot of people do find value in the NAR from some of the training, some of the, you know, rule enforcement that they have become, you know, they're de facto policymakers in real estate, but the vast majority of people that I've spoken to anecdotally, and then also from the survey that we conducted, which had a response of close to 300 people felt like if we could get it access to the MLS without being members of the NAR, we would absolutely do that. So I, I don't think that there's a lot of good sentiment on the part of the everyday agent with the NAR. And the NAR needs them. And that's in, in they do. And it's in contrast to how they feel about their local and state associations, which most people are very involved in. They feel a lot of value from that. They, um, you know, they're very protective of that. It's a really different vibe. Um, I'm going to a state association today, actually. Um, and I've been doing that uh, over the last several months, going to those state association meetings. And there's a lot of positivity in those. And people Much feel like, you know, I mean, it's just like, it's their people. It's, you know, it's not some far away, you know, um, thing that they send dues to. They, they are very involved. And generally speaking, they feel, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of support for that. These are the people they transact with day in, day out. These are people at rival brokerages. They probably recruit or try to get recruited by. It, these are the people they interact with. How many everyday agents do you think have ever had a conversation with Bob Goldberg or Katie Johnson or any number of executives at the NAR, which is not to say they have a professional staff of a couple hundred people. They absolutely do advocate for agents and they work with state associations and local chapters, but generally the interactions that people have are what they remember. And if your interaction with the NAR is, let's say you're on the board of directors, you're one of the 800 something members, a lot of people don't take it seriously. A lot of people have a huge number of criticisms about sort of the real politic nature of the NAR and and just that it's it's kind of a bureaucratic mess. Everything is a committee or a study or whatever, and and things take years to happen. It's almost like a, I think it reminds a lot of people of bad government. And these are entrepreneurs, right? They're often people who don't like you know artificial roadblocks and and all kinds of uh, you know talking around studies and all that. These are people of action for the most part, these are entrepreneurs, right? Like they, they want to be entrepreneurial and instead things just kind of get studied to death in the NAR and, you know, random people get appointed and, and stick with it for 40 years and suddenly they make a million dollars and they're like, what? We couldn't find anybody better qualified. So you brought up politics. One of the questions I have, you know, anytime you look at the DOJ, well, we are in an election year coming up to an election year, you know, and definitely this DOJ is, has, you know, it, there's sort of a mandate to look into how do we, how do we get the um, home buying process cheaper? And so far that's resulted in all sorts of things on the mortgage side and on the real estate side. And, and sometimes, you know, it feels like we're, we're nibbling around on the edges on the small things where it's like, feels like we're missing the bigger picture sometimes. That's just my editorial there. But um, on the other hand, you know, the, I, I, 
100% support their, you know, the fact that they're looking at housing at all. We've had so many administrations where housing is just a backwater um, as a result of that, you know, interest uh, issues and appraisal bias and re- redlining. I mean, there's lots of good things about about a current administration looking at housing. Um, but one of the, my questions is, you know, if we do have a change of administration, what does that do to the DOJ case? And do we expect this to all be wrapped up before then or what? So we are speaking on December 5th, 2023. So if the Biden administration stays in power, I think there is a very, very, very good likelihood that the NAR rules as we know it are going to get rewritten, whether it's by the judge in the Sitzer Burnett case, and he has wide latitude with regard to injunctive relief over the participation rule. He can essentially kill it if he wants. And then we would have a scenario whereby which buyers have to come up with their own pool of money to pay for their representation. That's one scenario. The other is the DOJ wins this appeal, wins it fairly quickly. I mean, this will probably get, this appeal will probably get decided fairly soon, next couple weeks, month. This is not going to linger. And let's say they do prevail. The DOJ is going to renew its investigation into both clear cooperation, which again is the rule governing when you put it on the MLS and, and is, uh, designed to kill the pocket listing, which a lot of luxury agents, you know, of course, actually hate because they they want more privacy for their clients. So you have two major threats here. If the judge in the Sitzer Burnett case has a very strong ruling on the participation rule, what the DOJ does almost doesn't matter. Not, Not almost doesn't matter, but that's already a huge problem for the NAR and that would become rule of law very quickly. If the injunctive relief is not very strong and maybe they say the judge says, all you have to do is put a zero into the buyer broker compensation agreement. Again, considered a weak form uh, of injunctive relief regarding the rule and the DOJ comes out with, a strong investigation and says, you're going to have to totally redo this. You got to kill this. We got to kill this. We're going to rewrite these rules. Yenner doesn't really have a good shot at prevailing. Then they would have to hope that they can wait out this administration and hope that the Trump administration comes in and again, settles with them. And it's a pretty, favorable settlement. They're going to try to drag this out as long as possible. It's in their best interest politically, but if the Biden administration wins, I think there are just too many. The deck is kind of stacked against them. You either have the judicial ruling from the judge in in the Sitzer Burnett case and then other potential rulings and other antitrust private cases, or the DOJ has another five years to come up with a ruling. That's, that's a very, very bad scenario for the NAR who would lose a lot of members, I think. Yeah, no, I mean, that's why, you know, to your point, you said, you know, it's in their, in their favor to try to drag this out. And what we've heard um, at the 
uh, NARS annual convention. And, you know, th- what they're putting out there is like, you know, appeal, appeal, appeal. Um, you know, it's going to take years and this appeal process is just starting and all that. But, um, you know, I'm not sure I, there's, there's mixed reviews on, on what we'll see with appeals and, and what that looks like. So, but I can understand from their perspective, that's, you know, they're pinning their hopes on that. Yeah. And, and not to scare anybody, but we've talked about Ryan Tomasello at KBW and he's an analyst. He covers the residential real estate space. And he's had this ongoing report called Commission Impossible. And to date, he's been pretty much 100% accurate on everything. And his thesis is that there's going to be a major reckoning when it comes to the participation rule and the way the NAR is able to enforce, um, you know, the compensation for agents. And again, he thinks that 30% of commissions are going to just disappear and they're going to have hundreds of thousands of agents that wash out in the next, you know, however many years. So it's, it's certainly something I think a lot more agents should read up on. And, uh, you know, we're not the only ones talking about it, of course, but these are very consequential. This could be an existential threat to a lot of small brokerages. This could be a major transformation of how the NAR is is even set up and what sort of advocacy work they're able to provide to agents. Uh, it's it's a really monumental case. This could be the defining case of our era, and it still surprises me how few agents know much or anything about it. There are, I, I mentioned I was on that uh, call with hundreds of agents and these are very engaged agents who, you know, have coaches and, and, you know, are looking for, for more information. And, and there were some that did not, uh, didn't really know much about this at all. I mean, they were asking pretty basic questions. Then you had others that were very well informed, but I would encourage all our listeners, um, housingwire.com. We have a whole uh, commission lawsuits page that you can look at archives. Um, You can get caught up and we're always doing the latest. Um, James, thanks so much for being on and talking about the latest here. Yeah. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight. 